Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here this morning. We are in the book of 2 Corinthians. You can turn there. We're kind of at the end of chapter 8. That's in the back of the Bible, New Testament, um, and going into chapter 9. Uh, we've been in our series called The God of All Comfort. The reason we titled our series The God of All Comfort is because that's why Paul said he wrote this book. He said, praised God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And so Paul was writing, if you remember, for those of you who are new who haven't been here, Paul wrote a couple of letters to the Corinthians. We have two of those. First Corinthians, Paul wrote, and he was kind of really hard on him. It was a letter of like, you guys are, you say you're Christians, you say you're walking with God, but you're allowing all this stuff to go on in your life and in the lives of others. And it's killing the glory of God. It's making God look terrible. It's got to stop. And so his first letter was really harsh. Well, then what happens is the people actually listen to Paul. They repent and Paul's amazed by it. So he writes a second letter of like, oh my goodness, I'm amazed by the fact that you surrendered your life to Jesus. You've surrendered your life to one another and you actually want to find your comfort in God and not in all the things of the world because you were finding your comfort in all the things of the world before. Now you're finding your comfort in God and the mission that he has for us in the world. And so that's where we find ourselves. We've gone through multiple weeks. Last week, we talked about the idea of, of grace, um, the gift of grace, and the gift of grace being money. See, Paul spends seven chapters, and then all of a sudden, in chapters eight and nine, he talks about this gift of grace, and he talks about the aspect of money. I don't enjoy talking about money, but I have to, because Jesus spent more time talking about money and eternity than any two other subjects that he ever talked about in all four Gospels. And the reason is because our belief about what we are spending our life on, whether that's our money or our time, really does declare what we believe about eternity. It just does. You can't hide it. Like I always tell people, if you really want to know where I'm at spiritually, take some time to look at my bank account. I can give you that. And take some time to spend and talk to my wife. You'll find out real quick how great or how not great I am. And how much I say what I believe. And you go, well, you say you believe this, but then there's this. You spent money all these ways, but you say you trust in God. You say you want to see God reach the world. You say you love the church, but you didn't do anything with it. And you would be able to confront me on that if that were true. And so Paul is saying, look, the idea of grace, which is an unmerited favor that God gave you, it's free. The gift of grace is what Christ did on the cross, and he extends his grace. We can't earn grace. But our response to grace and finding our comfort in it is to realize that I want to give everything I can to the glory of God in my life because I understand all that I've been given in grace. It's a natural response, Paul says. And he's writing to this Corinthian church to remind them of that. Most of us, when we think about giving money or giving grace, giving, we think of it in terms of what we're going to get. Because that's the way our world is designed. You, you give and you get. That's the mentality that we have. That's the mentality that Paul's actually pushing back against. But he actually, in this ninth chapter, digs a little bit in on. And you can... You can see how people believe this because in most relationships, when someone stops getting for all the reasons they were giving, that's when they leave the relationship. Let me say that again. When someone stops getting for all the reasons they were giving, that's when they leave the relationship. 
They get exposed. That I wasn't in this relationship because I really wanted to give myself fully to this church, to, this, to these people, to, to this wife, to this husband, to my children. No, no, no. I'm only in it as long as I get something out of it. And that is the opposite of the God of this book, who is constantly fulfilling his promises that he made even to the idiots in here and the idiots like us. Like, it's totally different. And that's the concept of grace. And so Paul is trying to look and say, hey, I want to invite you to participate in the grace of giving yourself, giving your finances, giving of who you are and what God's given you. We look last week, chapter 8 starts out and says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace, about the ministry of grace is what he's going to talk about today. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God granted to the churches of Macedonia. Remember, these churches in Macedonia are being persecuted. Let me repeat that. They're being persecuted. They're starving because there's a famine. They have nothing. They have been decimated. If anybody deserves to get a gift, it's the church in Macedonia. And the church in Macedonia hears about the suffering of Jerusalem and the church in Jerusalem. And the church in Macedonia pools all of their resources together without being asked because they accidentally hear about the suffering of Jerusalem. Nobody comes to them and says, hey, Jerusalem's suffering, you need to give your money. They hear rumors about this suffering. They start to ask the spiritual leaders, Paul, Titus, and others, Luke, who come to visit them. And they're like, oh yeah, the Jerusalem church is really hurting. Husbands are being killed and there are thousands of widows being made because their husbands have been martyred for the faith. Children don't have parents and, and be anymore because their parents stood up for the faith and were crucified and died. And the Macedonian church is like, well, we don't have it that bad. So they take up their money and they, are, they send it to Jerusalem without being asked. And that's why Paul says, look at the grace that the Macedonian church understood that they had and their response to saying, it doesn't matter if we get another thing in this world, we just want people to know that God loves them and he cares for them and he hasn't forgotten them. That, that, that's exactly what Paul writes. And then in chapter nine, he picks it up and he says, now that's the gift of grace, right? God's grace granted to us. Now he says, concerning the ministry to the saints, the ministry of grace, it's unnecessary for me to write to you, he says. You've seen this. This is what's been modeled throughout all the Old Testament, this idea of giving to God of what he's given to us. In the Old Testament, you gave your grain, you gave your crops, you, your other crops, you gave your olives, you gave your sheep, you gave all of these things because you recognized that God was the one that gave it all to you. And so Paul's saying, I don't really even need to write about this, but I do because you aren't doing it because you think it's all yours. <clears throat> You think your money is yours and you think that your time and your resources are yours and God's the one that's given you breath. You couldn't work tomorrow to make another dollar if your health wasn't preserved by God. And that's the recognition of us as believers that's different than the world out there. Because the world out there says, I deserve. And we, we as believers say, yes, I deserve nothing and Christ has given me everything. The world says, I deserve everything and I should have to give nothing. And it's the opposite of the gospel. And so Paul's like, look, I shouldn't even have to write to you about this, but I'm going to, right? Is what he says. And if you look at it this way, we put up this illustration. 
It's the idea of a, a dollar bill with the word grace on it. When you have a dollar in your wallet, do you see that dollar as God's grace on your life? Do you see that as his provision or is it, ooh, I got a dollar. I got $10. What am I going to do? Oh, I've been waiting to buy that. I've been hoping and dreaming that I could get that thing. Does it even cross your mind when you get a dollar to think, I wonder if God wants me to give this to anyone as a ministry of his grace in their life? See, most of it aren't even taught to think that way. The second we receive a paycheck, the second we receive things, the first thing we think is, what are all the things I need for me? And God's like, no. You think about all the people that I'm trying to use the grace, my grace in your life for you to show your care and my care for them. And that starts in your own household, we'll see this morning. And so Paul lays this out. We pick up 2 Corinthians 8, 16. We, that's where we left off last week. Paul says, thanks be to God who put the same concern for you into the heart of Titus. The same concern that the Macedonians had for the Jerusalem church, Paul says, Titus has for you as the Corinthian church. Titus loves you. He has given his life to care for you. Titus was one of the, the early missionaries that Paul raised up. He wrote a book to him. It's called the book of Titus. And he says, for he accepted our urging. And being very diligent, went out to you by his own choice. So Paul says, even though we urged him, and even though Titus is very diligent, he still had a choice to make. We didn't demand it. We weren't like, if you don't do what we tell you, Titus, we're going to get you. He's like, we urged him. He's a diligent guy. And he said, you know what? I really do want to go to the Corinthian church and talk to them about all that God has given them and the responsibility we have. And what God is doing in the churches. And he says, we have sent with him the brother who is praised throughout the churches for his gospel ministry. Now, how many of you have ever forgotten someone's name? A lot of scholars think that Paul, Paul's probably in his 60s at this point when he writes this letter, forgot the guy's name. Like you could see him in his mind and he's like, that guy, oh, he's so faithful. You know, that guy, he's a good guy. You know, that, that guy we sent with the guy. Because he mentions everybody else's name and he's like, you know, the guy, my brother, bro. Like this, I love that. We don't know if that's for sure, but there's no other reason why Paul doesn't mention Titus's name. He mentions another person. He mentions all these names and this guy's like, you know, the brother. So if you ever forget someone's name, don't feel like, oh, I'm a loser, and God's, no, Paul's right there with you, most likely. And then he goes on, and he says, and not only that, but he was also appointed by the churches to accompany us with this gift that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. Like, Paul even describes this guy more di deeply, and he still forget, like, it's like he's writing, like, okay, I'm gonna, I'll remember his name in a minute. I still don't know, but he's a great guy, and then he just moves on. And he says, look, Titus and this other guy, some scholars believe it was probably the, the uh, it was probably Luke, because Luke traveled with Titus, so, so many scholars think maybe it was Luke who was journeying, Luke who wrote one of the Gospels. But Paul is saying, look, we've sent some faithful men. These aren't just charlatans that are going around collecting money for their own back pocket. 
These are men that you know have given their life. They don't take money for themselves. They're not driving a Mercedes, okay? They're, they're driving a jalopy. They're trying to just get from point A to point B. These guys have given their lives so that you and other people could be cared for. You know who they are. So when they come and ask for money, unlike the other people, recognize these people are responsible with their money. They're responsible in the church. You see, we don't even ask that question today half the time. Most people join churches or become a part of churches and they never, I repeat, never look at the theology and the, and, and the leaders of the church and how they live their lives. They walk in the door, they go, wow, it's got a nice temperature in here. I, I like the lights. I like the music. I like all these things. But they never ask the question, is the is the leadership faithful? Can I see their faithfulness to live responsible lives? I want to know that. I want to drive to their house and drive by. I want to see how they live. And if I want to question how they live in that house, I'm going to ask them. They should willingly answer because guess what? I'm responsible to you as a church. The Bible is clear. I'm not leading you. I'm with you. You, have, you can confront me as just as much as I confront you, the scriptures say. And I am to give an account the Bible says, as a leader. And so many pastors, it's off limits. You can't ask about their family. You can't ask about their money. Nobody even tries to ask. Look for the church budget. Our budget's online. Public display. Here it all is. Ask questions. We're not hiding anything. Look at the theology. We put our class one up. It tells you everything about our church. We're not going to hide anything. This is who we are. It's not like you're going to get in the church and then we have a second class that kind of tells you the real stuff behind the scenes. We have one. That's us. That's who we are. Most churches, it's the bait and switch. They get you in the door. It looks great. Now, that's not all churches, but Paul's saying, look, Titus and this other guy, who I can't remember his name, you know that they didn't live that kind of life, that they didn't behave that way. You know that, and so does all the other churches. We gotta do a better job of believers of knowing this book, knowing this book so that we can administer the grace of God in people's lives properly and not get distracted and instead of having a ministry of grace, it becomes a ministry of something else. A ministry of money, a ministry of works, a ministry of control, a ministry of making a difference, whatever it is. No, it's the ministry of the grace of God that we do not deserve. Paul lays that out. He goes on and says this in verse 20 of chapter 8. He says, we are taking this precaution so that no one can criticize us about the large sum administered by us. Okay, pause for a second. Here's why he says this. We have multiple guys coming to get the offering. We, have, we are only asking people to do that who are trusted. We have got checks and balances because we recognize that the offering that's being offered is a large sum. I bet you they also selected guys who could defend themselves because when you're carrying large offerings and walking from point A to point B, you might need to figure out a way how to protect it. I don't know. I mean, they didn't have armored cars. So they were driving around in an armored car. You know, here comes Titus in the you know, church armored car. I'm sure that wasn't the case. But literally, Paul says, there are checks and balances in this. We're not just collecting money and then using it for ourselves. We selected guys that will not use a dime, not a cent of this for themselves. Because it's got to be used for these churches that are hurting. And then he says, look at this. For we are making provision for what is right, not only before the Lord, but also before men. 
You see, so many people say, you know, we just need to do what's right before the Lord. No, you need to do what's right before men too. You know how many churches right now in our country are so in violation with Caesar, with the United States government and the IRS on money? It's huge. You would be shocked if I sat down and talked to you. And they don't care. You want to know why they don't care? Because they haven't gotten caught. They haven't gotten caught. See, the United States government is a democracy. What happens if all the politicians go after the churches, the mosques, and the temples in our country? What happens if the politician decides, the first politician that decides I'm going after all the churches, all the temples, all the, all the, the mosques, because we have to all have the right view of the laws we wrote in the IRS, what's going to happen to that politician? He's gone. He's not going to get reelected. So I'm not going to go after the churches. I'm just going to turn a blind eye. Not, well, they're not doing it right, but I'm not going to be the one that opens up that can of worms. Churches, it is a mess, folks. It's awful. And every time we bring it up to churches, they look at us like we're crazy. Oh, you, you're only seven. You can't know that. And then Jason, with all of his wisdom, pulls up the IRS code. He says, it says right there, IRS. Boom. There it is. Do you like that? And then they're really offended at Jason. They're like, I don't, well, that's your opinion. No, it's legal code. It's not an opinion. I don't know. Now, I want to believe you. I want you to be able to do what you're doing, but show me how this fits what you're doing. I don't know, but you know what? We haven't been caught, so we're good. Listen, Paul writes and he says, we want to be good with God, but we also want to be sure we do what's right by men. Now, if what men are asking us to do is not right by God, then we'll take that stand and we'll die for it. But if Caesar is asking us to do things that are just inconvenient, but don't go against our faith, then why aren't we doing them? And that's exactly what Paul says here. And then he goes on, he looks, he says, we have also sent with them our brother. We have often tested him in many circumstances and found him to be diligent and, and now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker serving you. As for our brothers, they are the messengers of the churches to the glory of God. Paul forgets another brother's name. <laughs> you know that other brother. Then he goes on and he says, Therefore, show them proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you. You say you love God, prove it. Well, that sounds like works. Nope. It's just simple. It's like every relationship you're in. You say you like working here at this company, but you never show up for work. I would like for you to prove that you enjoy working here at this company by showing up. Well, that's legalistic. You're, you're causing me to have all these rules. No, just show up. You have a job to do. It's the same in a marriage. You say you love me, but... At the end of the month, there's no money to buy groceries because you've squandered it all. Well, but I love you, honey. You're, you're my honey. There's no money. I can't feed my kids. Yeah, but you know I love you. Well, I'd know better you love me if you went out and worked and got a second job and brought some groceries home. That would really show me love. Well, but I brought you flowers last week. I, I can't eat flowers. Is it wrong to bring flowers? No. 
But Paul is writing and he's saying, look, show proof of your faith. Here's why. Don't show proof of your faith because you're trying to show off and say, look at me. Show proof that you really do believe how wretched you are and how great God is and how much grace he's given you. And that will show up in the way you manage your life. It'll just show up. I'm, I'm nothing. God's everything. None of this is mine. It's all his. What, that's what I want to live that. I want to live that way. I want to, I want to make more money, not because I want a bigger house, a nicer car, and a new wife, because this one got old, and maybe some new kids. That's not why I'm going to keep chasing the American dream. I want people to, I, I want to use more of God, the resources of this world for the glory of God. Paul says, look, they're coming, and I want you to show the proof that I know that you have, the proof that you believe what God says. We need to do a better job of looking at leaders. We need to do a better job of looking at where we give and where we respond to the ministry of grace in our churches. James says this, the apostle, or, uh, the apostle James wrote this in his book. He said, in the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, I have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith from my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. Well, I believe in Jesus. Well, so does Satan. Good job. I don't know whose team you're on yet. Satan believes in Jesus. So do we. I don't know which team you're on. You say you believe. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Great. Prove it. Prove it. Talk is cheap. Prove it. Now, I, if you're new this morning, this is not a message to get you to give. We're not, we don't even take an offering up in this church. You want to know why we don't pass an offering plate? You'll see it in a minute in the scripture. We don't, do we, because I, I can't stand to watch an offering plate go by and then people are scrambling to try to find money to put in. It's like, no. If you're committed, then put in the box. If you're not, that's fine. You're not ready yet. You don't know what God has done for you. That's okay. Paul, James goes on and he says, you believe, they also believe, Foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? It's dead. Now, are we saved by, by our works? Nope. You cannot balance the scales with God. It's impossible. You cannot balance the scales. That's why Jesus had to die, was to take our place because we are going to be executed. And Jesus is like, I'll die in your place. And when you make that great exchange and then you understand all the promises of God, then your response is to behave in grace. It's to understand all that God has given you and all that he's asking you to give. James goes on and says this, who is the wise and understanding among you? He should show his works by good conduct with wisdom's gentleness. So you say you have faith, but, but do you show it? Does it, does, is it naturally coming out of you little by little? And sure, we struggle in our faith and it takes time to develop, but the question is, why, why not? Why am I not practicing the ministry of grace, of what God has done? Look at what Jesus, Jesus wrote a, a parable. I'm sorry, he tells a story in Luke 21. He says this, Jesus looked up and saw the rich dropping offerings into the temple treasury. They had a box. They dumped their offerings in. Okay? It was coinage in those days. I said this last week. It was coins. So if someone went back there right now with a huge bag of coins and dumped that into the box, 
Everyone in this room would hear it. You'd know it. It'd be like, oh, so I, I want to turn around. Who was the person who did that? They must really love God, right? Look at what Jesus says. He saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. Remember, the offering that Paul's talking about sending to Jerusalem was to take care of widows and orphans. This woman, even under the Old Testament, which it was under the Old Testament, not the church, was supposed to be taken care of in the temple as a widow. She was not to give in the temple. They were to take care of her for her faithfulness. She had every right to say, I, I don't give because I'm receiving because I am an officially a widow. Look at what happens. This poor widow, Jesus, he says, I tell you the truth, Jesus said. This poor widow has put in more than all of them. When Jesus said this, this was, one of the, this was one of the top festivals when all the Jews were traveling from all over the known world to come to Jerusalem three times a year. This was one of those festivals to come and celebrate at the festival. And Jesus said, this woman has given more than all the people that traveled for weeks and weeks, all the people that came, all the people that are staying in nice hotels and then came and gave big offerings to the temple that they, they saved up all year. This woman just did more than that. Look at what it goes on to say. He says, for all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in all she had to live on. As some were talking about the temple complex, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, he said, pause. I, I don't know how Jesus didn't just smack people. I really don't. I, I mean, I don't. I, I do not know how Jesus just like, I mean, sometimes he did, but, you know, with the whip and temple. But, like, he gives this message about this widow, and then the first thing they do is go, oh, that's nice. Wow, look at all the money. Look at all the riches. This is amazing. And Jesus is like, this, she's amazing. This is not amazing. This building and all this stuff, he goes, this is not amazing. What she did is amazing. And instead of asking questions about the widow, they start asking questions about the temple. Jesus is like, well, you could ask questions about the widow. You could be like, well, I don't understand her two penny. Tell me why that's amazing, Jesus. Tell me why we should be more like her and less like all the people that dumped in all their money. Tell me how we should, I'm trying to understand why she did what she did when she didn't have to. No, they don't ask any of those questions. They literally just awkwardly like, oh, okay. Wow. And that's what we do. We don't look for real faith. We look for visible faith. And the Bible says that faith is the evidence of things not seen and the conviction of who God is. That is faith. This woman had faith. Your two pennies aren't going to do anything. You might as well keep them, old lady. She's like, I'm not giving these to you. I'm not giving these to, these temp to this temple. I am giving these to the Lord God Almighty. That's who I'm giving it to. Because I understand everything he's given me. And even though I'm a widow and I don't have a husband and I'm destitute because I don't have a husband and I obviously don't have children who want to care for me, even though I've lost everything, I'm going to give everything to God. And then they're concerned about how beautiful the temple looks. And Jesus is so concerned about how beautiful the widow looks. Goes on, he says, these things that you see, notice how Jesus says it, these things you see, you miss the widow. 
And all you see is all the lights and glamour. And he says, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. The temple's going to be leveled. By the way, the temple's still leveled today. We're still fighting in Israel today. It's leveled. It's gone. It's been gone for 2,000 years. In AD 70, the temple was destroyed. And they took it down stone by stone. Do you want to know why? The Romans took it down stone by stone because they lined the inside of the temple with gold. And so they took the stones down to heat the stones up to melt the gold off the stones, the soldiers did, so they could take a little bit of gold home with them. Stone by stone, piece by piece, and they dug into it because the temple was also set on fire. And so gold actually went down into the foundation. They actually dug up Herod's old temple. So there was nothing left of it to get to the gold. And see, these people are looking, they're, they're looking and they're saying to one another, Jesus is like, that widow is going to live forever. This temple is not even going to be here in a few years. You're missing it. Look at what they said. Teacher, they asked him, so when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Again, if I'm Jesus and just, I just, I just want to be like, no. you're concerned about yourself? You're still not concerned about the widow? You're still concerned, well, when's it going to happen? I don't know. I, uh, uh. Quit focusing on yourself. I'm looking at the widow. She's amazing. Goes on. Jesus said this. He said, watch out. Watch out that... You are not deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. The time is near. Jesus says, don't follow them. When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. Everybody's freaking out right now. I'm like, not alarmed. God said that Ishmael and Isaac, Abraham's two sons, would fight forever until Jesus came back. Guess what they're doing today? Fighting. Guess what they did 100 years ago? Fight. 1,000 years ago, fight. He looks, he says, when you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. Indeed, these things must take place first, but the end won't come right away. Follow me. Why aren't you concerned with how great the widow follows me? Instead, you're concerned about how beautiful the temple is, end times prophecies. I mean, we love to talk about end times and we love to go to churches that are preaching on the book of Revelation and we love to buy books to talk about end times prophecies. But most of us don't want to talk about books about money and how to live on less and give more. We put those books off to the side. He goes on and he says, and Jude said this, for some men who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They're ungodly, turning the grace of our God into promiscuity and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. Paul says, look, I'm sending guys that aren't like that. They're not promiscuity. They're not living high on the hog. These are men that have given their life. And these other guys have come in by stealth and they've twisted the word of God to make it sound like if you believe in Jesus, you're going to get rich and healthy and have everything you want. Jesus died on a cross and then said, follow me, pick up your cross. I don't think, you, I, I'm pretty sure he didn't have like money bags at the bottom of the cross, right? I don't think they like drove him to the cross in a really nice, beautiful Mercedes and parked and was like, get up on the cross now, Jesus. Like we just don't like the message. 
And Paul is amazed at the Macedonian church. He's amazed at the Corinthian church right now because he's like, wow, you get the message. You're like the widow. You're like the people of faith of the Bible who got it. Jesus says this about money in Mark. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. See, we don't like that verse. Well, that sounds like works-based, Jesus. You know, if you believe in Jesus, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, you will be saved, the Bible says. Yes, you will be. Question is, did you actually believe with your heart? Or did you believe for something else? There's a lot of people who pray prayers. I prayed three times to accept Jesus, and I never, never surrendered my heart. I just wanted Jesus to fix stuff in my life. So I prayed, Jesus, I'm praying to you, now fix this. Okay, I'm going to invite you in, now fix it. And they didn't fix it, and I'm like, see, that's pointless. And then I got real miserable again, and I said, hey, Jesus, fix this. Jesus didn't fix it again. Okay, I'm done again. It took one time, one time, my freshman year of, in October, around this time of year, that I finally said, I'm done. I surrender. I get it now. You are who you say you are, and I'm just a peon. I'm nothing compared to you. My life is yours. Jesus said this in Luke, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes in and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be ready for service and have your lamps lit. He's like, be ready, have oil so that you don't walking around in the dark. You're prepared for what's coming. Paul is telling the Corinthian church, I'm sending people to you because you prepared a gift. Thank you. Like, get ready. Matthew says, give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, does that mean we do it irresponsibly? No. No. We need to be truthful and we need to be good stewards. But Jesus is like, why are you so scared to give what I've given you to someone else? Unless you don't believe I gave it to you and it's yours. Now you're God, not me. Matthew says this, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. No one can be a slave of two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and money. You got to make a choice. You got to make a choice. Paul goes on to say this in 9.1. Now concerning the ministry to the saints, the ministry he's talking about that he's been laying out for the last chapter is the ministry of giving finances to other churches, other partnerships, partnering. We give 15% of every dollar that comes in, we give outside of ourselves two things that I'm not in charge of or none of our staff are in charge of. Many churches, they start ministries and then they start missions and the pastor at the top controls all the money and sits on all the boards for all the missionaries and things they sponsor. That is dangerous, folks. Paul says that is not the way to do it. And Paul says this ministry of freely giving to the other churches and to the saints. Paul says it's unnecessary for me to write to you. You know this stuff. For I know your eagerness, he says, and I brag about you to the Macedonians. Paul says, look, I'm writing this to you, but you've already said you're eager to give. You've already repented of your sins. You already see that God is doing so much in your life and that you're in one of the wealthiest cities in the Roman Empire in Corinth. They were. 
He's like, you understand that all this wealth you have has been given to you so maybe you can help the other churches. Instead of saying, well, we got a good here in Corinth. We need to protect it. We need to build some bigger churches. We need to really, you know, do the thing. They're like, no, we just need to give. We need to be generous, Paul says. And he says, you guys, like the Macedonians, get it. And then he says, Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. He's like, your zeal to want to give your resources to help other believers who, who are struggling and to get the gospel out into the world, he's like, you're actually spurring other churches on to rethink how they view money, to rethink how they see their lives, how they do their marriages and their families. You are, you are causing a zeal to spread. And remember, Paul wrote a letter to them to say, before, you guys are actually spreading garbage all over. And now Paul is saying, it's changed. You guys have changed. You are spreading the zeal of God because of your responsibility. 2 Corinthians goes on and says, but I sent the brothers so our boasting about you in the matter would not prove empty and so you would be prepared just as I said. For if any Macedonian, Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, would be embarrassed in that situation. Therefore, I, I, I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised so that it will be ready as a gift and not as an as an extortion. See, Paul says, look, I know you want to give this great gift. I've sent the brothers. The reason I've sent them is because I want you to get prepared because sometimes you just forget. And he's like, I don't want you to be embarrassed. I don't want us to show up and be like, okay, I'm here to collect the gifts. And you guys are like, oh, well, I, had, I need a new transmission. And then I did this. And then I did that. And we, oh, we don't have any money. Paul's like, I don't want that to happen. I want you to let your yes be yes, your no be no, as Jesus says. I want you to be able to fulfill your yes be yes and your no be no. Because Jesus said anything beyond that is evil. It's from the evil one. He's like, I'm just reminding you, you gave your yes to this offering, right? Asia is, I mean, he's ready to go. But I want the rest of you to get ready to go because he says this, I don't want to come and then you feel like you're being extorted because, uh-oh, Paul's here. Oh, I got to show Paul. I got some money in my wallet. What do I got? Oh, crud. I only have a five. Oh, here, Paul. Love you. I prepared. Really? You prepared? Doesn't look like you prepared. I watched you. You're kind of in a hurry to not be embarrassed. So you pulled out your wallet so you wouldn't be embarrassed and like, Handed quarters to all your kids to put in. So none of them are embarrassed. Paul's like, I'm just telling you to get your life in order before I get there because I want us to be able to celebrate the offering we bring together. Not be embarrassed and think, oh, no, I'm just telling you, like, get prepared. It's going to be awesome. We're going to bring in this offering and then we're going to take it to the churches and they're going to be excited. Like, this is going to be awesome. He says, goes on and says this in Matthew, Jesus said this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them from one another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his, on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Wow, how awesome would it be to have Jesus say that to you? Now, what's the measurement that Jesus gets ready to tell them about how the, you can kind of have some confidence about this happening? This is not a fun passage. 
Look at what he says. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. He does not say, if you just pray a prayer and get baptized, you're in. Is it by faith that we're saved? Yes, it's not works. It's not like you give to the hungry and you get three more of your sins worked off. It's not like you pay a bigger tithe and you're better than your neighbor. That is not what God is talking about. He's saying, if you truly understand that you get to reign with me and have all the resources of heaven at your disposal, if you understand that, like Paul's writing about, you're gonna be like, here. I, I don't need this. This is nothing compared to what I'm getting. Here's, you, I'll help you, I'll help you, I'll help you. Like, that's what I'm going to do. That's your heart, Paul says. And evangelicals in the United States don't like that message. We like to just pray to receive Jesus, get baptized, you're in. Well, I don't know what the person's heart was. Again, I, I prayed three times. Three times I walked the aisle. I was baptized twice and did not come to know Jesus. I was lost. I would have spent eternity separated from God because I kept trying to add God to my life, not give God my life. And it took one time and one baptism for me to surrender my life and be done. And boy, did the fruit pay off. All of a sudden, I had the Holy Spirit. My life started to change. I put people in my life. Things got really different really fast. And man, is it worth it. He goes on. Jesus says, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? This proves they weren't doing it to get anything. They were so naturally just helping people, they didn't even realize they were doing it. Like, oh, when did we? Versus all of us, we want to brag about it. I'm going to post on social media that I helped today. There you go. Look at me. Look what I did for Jesus. He goes on, he says, when did we see you a stranger and take you in without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer you. I assure you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Circle and underline that. He doesn't say, whoever willy-nilly walks up and needs something. He says, brothers. That word is a Christian word. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't just give willy-nilly God's stewardship to whoever asks or wants it. You go to those and say, okay, you're a brother in the faith. That's who I want to support. The church gets this back, backwards, which is why the church is in such a mess today. We keep trying to attract people with goodies, and then they come into the church for the goodies, and guess what? When they run out, they leave the church. If we took care of one another well, then the lost world would look in and say, how can I get that care? And then we say, well, we can't just give it to you. You need to surrender your life to Christ and we can help you a little bit, but we can't fully help you because our responsibility is to the family of God, not to give everything that God has to everybody else. That's my first responsibility. That's what Jesus says. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, and do the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And they too will answer, Lord, when did we? Then he will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me either. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Romans says this, for I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh, for I desire to do what is good. The desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. What a wretched man I am, Paul says. Who will rescue me from this dying body? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So then with my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh to the law of sin. Paul's like, this is a hard thing. This is difficult. It's a wrestling battle between what you want and what God wants. And God, who can save us in the midst of that battle? Who can make it right? Paul's like, only Jesus. Only the ministry of grace that Jesus gave us can make you right. Not how much money you give, not how much time you give. None of that can make you right. Only the grace of the ministry of Jesus. But when he gives you that grace, it's going to come out. 2 Corinthians goes on and says, remember this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. This is one of the most misused Bible verses in all of Scripture. It's repeated a few times in the Scripture. This verse is used by a lot of prosperity preachers to say, if you, if you give me $10, God will multiply it to $100. Because if you sow sparingly, if you don't give more than 10, that, but if you give 100, oh, he's going to tenfold 1,000. So sow, sow, sow in me, the pastor, in us, the church, and then God's just going to give you money. God never promises to bring the harvest you want. He promises a harvest, but it may not be the harvest you want. It may be a harvest in a different way. And Paul gets ready to say that in just a minute. So if you want to sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. But if you sow your relationship with God, if you sow the gospel into people's lives, if you get responsible with your money, with your time, and with the Lord, God's like, watch what I'll do with it year after year after year after year. Watch what I can do. See, all of us think, well, I can't give a big gift. You don't have to. You just have to give little gifts. There was a guy at the football game yesterday. I don't know how many of you were at the football game. There's a guy at the football game yesterday that was from Gosport. Not a rich man. He's not. If you live in Gosport, you're not rich. Nobody rich lives in Gosport. I don't know if you know where Gosport is. Drive through Gosport. It's like, wow, this place needs some help, right? Like they got a Dollar General. That's it. This man is 90 years old. He's held, he's held season tickets to basketball and football for over 50 years. And they were honoring him at 90 as a poor man giving $250,000 over his lifetime to IU scholarships and athletics. I wish more Christians were that committed to the church and to God's business than we were to IU athletics. That one day we would wake up when we're 90 and we think, well, I really didn't give anything. And all of a sudden you do the math and you get a letter from heaven saying, hey, oh, you did a lot more than you think. We want to honor you. You get to heaven, Jesus is like, look, we want to honor you. Look at what you did. And like, I didn't do that. When did I? I just kind of gave a little bit here and there. I just bought tickets. I just went. Exactly. That's how the ministry of grace works. He goes on, he says, each person should do as he's decided in his heart and not reluctantly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know, some people will look at this and say, well, I just, yeah, you need to wait till you feel led to give. No, you don't. You need to be obedient to give. <laughs> God will bring the feelings. But don't give in bitterness when you have to do that. Don't be like, oh, I just have to give. Someday I'll feel it. If that's your attitude, then keep your money. But if your attitude is, I need to give because of all Christ has done for me, and the, even though I don't feel it, I don't see how this works, I just know I'm going to be faithful because I believe that God will bring the fruit. I believe he'll bring the harvest in my heart. Because if you wait till your heart is led, this is what Jeremiah says, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? 
Well, I'm just following my heart. Well, you need to follow what God says about money. Don't just follow your heart because your heart's pretty wicked. It'll twist things up and do things that just are nasty and put God's name on it. That's this whole book. Is God's people putting God's name on really nasty stuff. In verse 8, he says, and God is able to make every grace overflow to you. Paul says, look, this isn't about a grace of getting money because you gave money. It's every grace that Christ has in his offering, he will bring to you when you're faithful to him. So that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. As it is written, he's scattered, he gave to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. He's like, this is about righteousness. This is about doing the right thing. This is about showing the world how right it is, no matter what the results are, that God is right. He's faithful, and I'm going to do what he asked me to do, even when it doesn't make sense, because it's what he said. And I'm going to give generously, because I recognize I've been given so generously to by God. I recognize there are people that can't work because they're disabled. I recognize there are people that have mental issues I don't have. I recognize all these great things, but our world teaches all of you all the time to find all of your problems, not find your thankfulness for a great and awesome God. And we are miserable Suicides off the chart, depression, anxiety, because we haven't done the discipline of the ministry of the grace of thanksgiving and gratitude. And it shows because we just expect to get, we don't expect to become someone who can be a giver and plan for it. Hebrews says this no discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. <laughs> I've been working out, right? My son got me working out in June. I haven't worked out my whole marriage. Susan was telling somebody this story the other day. She goes, my, my, my son got my husband working out. He's never worked out in his life. I, I mean, I did when I was like early college, but once I got married, there was no need to work out anymore. I already got what I needed, right? Like, I'm good now. I'm in. And we're Christians, so you can't leave me. Like, you know, that's just, that was not my attitude. But I worked, I, I couldn't stand working out because I love to like, play basketball and do stuff. Like I'm a, if I'm going to work out, I want to do it by going out and playing ultimate Frisbee, playing basketball, like being active. I was active all the time doing construction. But in the last couple of years, my old body doesn't play basketball anymore. It hurts. I can't walk for two days because of my ankle after I play. Like seriously, it's that bad. I can't really do ultimate Frisbee. I can't do the things I used to do. And then I stopped working construction and I'm like, oh, this is not going to go well because I really like to eat. You know what I mean? So I got to do something. And so my son got me doing this. And you know what? There has not been a single morning since June. And I've done almost every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday I go in to work out. And there has not been one single morning that I have woken up and thought to myself, this seems like such a great idea. Not one. I wake up at 5.30, I don't, I don't look and go, wow, it's 5.30, it's time to go work out. I wake up, I'm like, I just wanna, no. I wanna go back to sleep. They're, this can make me sweat and hurt. And, I, and then I'm like, but my son, he's waiting on me. Daryl's waiting on me now. Daryl and I are working out. I'm like, dang it, I can't. I got to go. It doesn't seem enjoyable at the time, but by the time I get done working out, the rest of the day, it's like, oh, I feel better. It's like there's something different. No discipline seems enjoyable, but later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Look, you might look at me working out and being like, Matt, it's not working. I'm going to be like, no, nope, it hadn't changed much. It really hasn't. I could look at Dustin, who wrote my workout plan as a strength trainer at IU, and be like, your plan's not working. 
But the reason I'm working out is not so I can look a certain way like the temple and show off. The reason I'm working out is because it helps me to learn discipline, to find, to do the right thing, to be trained and to find peace in my life. I'm not working out to get ripped. I'm working out because I want to serve God longer and the better shape that I'm in, the longer I'm going to be able to endure in ministry. He goes on and he says, make straight paths for your feet so what is lame may not be dislocated but healed instead. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. With it, no one will see the Lord. He goes on, he says, make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble and defiling many. You can have a root of bitterness that comes up. Why do I have to do all this stuff? Second Corinthians goes on and says this. Now the one who provides seed for the sower... And bread for the food will provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Paul says, look, he's not going to provide you more money. He's going to provide you more righteousness. You're going to see how you're doing what is right. And then you're going to want to do more stuff that's right. And then he says, you will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. You'll know you're becoming more right because you're not bitter. You're more thankful every day for all God has done for you. You're so thankful that God is making you different and you see it little by little. And other people are telling you because you're choosing to do the right thing and to discipline yourself, like Hebrews says, to the ministry of grace. And it causes you to be thankful. Then he says, for this ministry of this service is not only supporting the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many acts of thanksgiving to God. Malachi says this in 3.5. He says, and this is the end of the Bible, the Old Testament, and God is talking about the judgment he's going to bring. And he says, I will come to you in judgment. That's Jesus is coming back to judge us again. I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the widow and the fatherless and cheat the wage earner, and against those who deny justice to the foreigner. They do not fear me. They do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts means Lord of armies. Because I, Yahweh, have not changed, you descendants of Jacob have, been, have not been destroyed. I've kept my promise even when you won't keep yours, he says. Since the days of your fathers, you've turned from my statutes, you've not kept them. Return to me, God says, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. But you ask, how can we return? And you would expect the answer to be, well, just pray and confess your sins and come to me. And the answer is, will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? You ask, how do, we, how do we rob you? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. The 10% is the tenth and then the offerings on top of that. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so there may be food in my house so you can provide for other people. You're not giving the tenth so that you can have a better children's ministry for your kids. You're giving the tenth so that people can come to know Jesus. And if that's your kids, praise the Lord. And then he says... Bring the full tenth, and look at this. Test me in this way, says the Lord of hosts. This is the only place in all the Bible that God says to test him. Everywhere else it says, do not test the Lord your God. And God says, test me. Try me. Get your finances in order and see what I can do. See what I can do to make you a giver the rest of your life. 
See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out blessing for you without measure. That doesn't mean you're going to get money. Blessing is not always money. There's other blessings. Sometimes it's the blessing of knowing you don't have any money because you gave it all and it's just a great blessing to feel that. And then it says, you have said it's useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of hosts? God knew their next question. Well, I've given all this money, but look, I don't have anything. I've given all this money. You said test you. I tested you and now I don't got no money. <laughs> he looks and he so now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. You're no longer looking to heaven, you're looking to one another. And then he says, each person should do as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Timothy says, if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will you take care of God's church? The real widow, left alone, has put her hope in God and continues night and day in her petitions and prayers. However, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives, Paul writes to Timothy. Command this also so they won't be blamed. But if anyone does not provide for his own, that is his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. God says it's not about getting everybody to like you and think you're great. The simplest form of obeying and worshiping God is to take care of those that God has put in your life, specifically your own household. It starts there and spreads from there. That's our first order of responsibility, taking care of the house of God and taking care of our household as in husband, wife, children. Don't feel guilty for taking care of God's house and taking care of your household. We need to do that and learn that discipline, he says. Some people will say that the tithe was just an Old Testament thing. I've heard that said so many times. God doesn't want us to give a tithe. Yeah, he wants all of it, by the way. But here's what the Bible says about giving the tithe. That's just the first 10%. Genesis says, Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, that's Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine and was, and was a priest to God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abraham is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and I give praise to God Most High who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Everybody says the tenth is the Old Testament law of the Levites. It's not. Abraham gave Melchizedek 10% when there was no law written. Watch what happens in Hebrews. And this becomes clearer if another priest like Melchizedek appears, who did not become a priest based on a legal command according to physical descent, that's the Levites of the Old Testament, but based on the power of an indestructible life. For it has been testified, you are a priest forever. Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus wants the first 10%. He wants all of it. But just like it was demand, just like Abraham willingly gave the first 10%, Melchizedek didn't demand the 10%. He didn't demand it. Abraham just knew it was right to give it. And it's repeated in the New Testament that Jesus isn't the Levites that we give the 10% to, who is the Melchizedek that we give it to. He goes on and says this in Corinthians They will glorify God for your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ. And for your generosity in sharing with them and with others through the proof provided by this service. And they will have deep affection for you in their prayers on your behalf because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. 
Look at that passage. Go back. Nice try, Coda. Now he's got to go back. Look at that passage. They will glorify God for your obedience. I don't know if you've ever seen people that have nothing and then God miraculously provides for them, especially through other believers in the church. This has happened in our lives numerous times where God has provided for our needs and provided things that we didn't see coming. And it's just been overwhelmingly generous and it just brings you almost to tears. I preached a revival this week, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night. Three hours driving every night. Susan went with me every night, even though she had to get up for work the next morning early. And it was such a gift to be with some really faithful people. It gave me such encouragement to think, okay, we're not alone. These are just faithful, generous, live simple people, church in the middle of a cornfield. Like it was just three generations of families serving Christ, walking with Christ in the church, sharing the gospel with their neighbors. I, it was amazing. Like I said, I, I was looking at Susan, I'm like, they could just not pay me. And me being here these four days is all I needed. It's been such a recharge for me to come here. And these people are so generous and kind and good. And they provide, they did a meal every night at 8, 39 o'clock. They had a full meal for everyone there. Other people from other churches were coming to the revival. I'm like, what is going on? I'm nobody. And then at the end of the week, when people came up and were in tears and then they gave us probably one of the largest checks I've ever been given other than by this church for preaching. And I, I wept. I wept. It was a privilege to preach. But they were just like, we are so grateful you were here. Thank you. This helps our church. And I just wept. And Susan and I just prayed for them all the way home. It's a ministry of grace. God can use you in the lives of people in a way that causes that same emotion, causes God to see, and it is beautiful. And thanks be to God for what he's done, not what we can do. Because his gift is so indescribable. Our gift's easy to describe, but his gifts are beyond. Let me ask you this morning, do you have the indescribable gift of Jesus Christ? Have you surrendered your life to him? Have you allowed his ministry of grace? You stopped living in works and trying to measure up to God, trying to get him in good relationship with you. Are you just done with that and you're ready to say, you know what? I want to just surrender to you and experience forgiveness and grace. If that's you this morning, you can do that. It starts with just saying, I do. Like a marriage. But it doesn't stop with I do. Because there's a lot that happens after that to make you more like Christ. And we want to help you. And for those of you who are believers, are you taking the ministry of grace seriously and in your life and in, and, and in the lives of other people? Are you ordering your life in a way that really takes seriously that God has future things for you and he wants you to get your life ready for what that future is? I don't know what it is, but he wants you to get your life in order so you're ready for it. So that you're ready to, to jump on the ministry of grace when it's time. And for those of you who love God, I pray that you would take the time to really Give God praise for his ministry of grace in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I thank you that 
This is a hard subject. I don't enjoy preaching about money because of how terrible it's talked about and used in our culture. But Lord, we have to because it really does show our heart. Lord, I am so grateful for the gifts that you give us. Most importantly, the gift of you and the grace that you gave us, that you died in our place for our sins. Lord, I pray for those that may not know you here this morning. They've never surrendered their life to you. Maybe they were like me, grew up in church their whole life. They know the stories of the Bible, but they don't truly understand the ministry of grace that you offer them. Lord, I pray that they would take seriously that offer, that you're offering them a relationship where they need to say, I do, because you've already said, I will. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here who hasn't done that, I pray today would be the day they would do it. And then they would tell somebody so that they can get help to continue in the ministry of grace. And all they have to do to do that is to tell you, I'm done. I surrender. You are the Lord Jesus Christ. You have forgiven me. And I thank you and I receive that forgiveness. And I surrender my life to you. For those of us who are believers, I pray that we take seriously the ministry of grace. And Lord, if there are things that we need to get right in our life, if there are things we need to get really deal with with you, I pray that we would be honest about that and we come before you and ask for your help and ask for the help of other believers. And for those of us who are walking in the ministry of your grace, Lord, I pray that we would have a thankfulness that would just go out from us to the other brothers and sisters and to those around us that would show people the indescribable gift that we have in you and the gift of heaven that we wait for that promise. In your name, amen.